0: and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. Today I'm really excited to be joined by Tim Marshall, a leading authority on foreign affairs with more than 25 years of reporting experience. Tim, you were diplomatic editor at Sky News. Uh, Before that you worked at the BBC and the LBC or IRN radio. You've reported from over 40 countries Uh, covered conflicts in Libya, Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Kosovo, Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria and Israel. Had to take a quick breath in the middle of that list there. Um, You've written for newspapers including The Times, Sunday Times, Guardian, Independent, Daily Telegraph. But if you don't recognize Tim by name, then you probably will by the title of the books that he's authored. Um, You authored the Sunday Times bestsellers, Um, Prisoners of Geography, 10 Maps That Tell You Everything You Need to Know About Global Politics. And earlier in 2021, you also published the follow-up to that, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. Um, So really excited to talk a little bit more about those publications and perhaps some of your other books as well, if we have time. Uh, But before we do, uh, you've reported from some very unstable Dangerous places, Tim, so I'm really interested because actually i w- I was quite um, attracted to the idea, perhaps this is kind of a romantic and naive um, appeal of war correspondence um, but what attracted you to journalism and in particular foreign affairs?
1: well i I, I admit um, I shared some of your romantic uh, naivety. <laughs> um and after a while it does get kicked out of you um and also I think it's it's actually quite egocentric if it isn't you know if after a few years of covering this stuff you 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 think it's romantic um I think there's a problem there Mm -hmm. um well I was always interested I, I always wanted to be a journalist even when I was a kid but um Um, I left school at 16. I didn't have any qualifications, and so there didn't seem any way in. You know, I mean, if you were a barrow boy out the East End, uh, there used to be ways of sort of, you know, ducking and diving your way into Fleet Street. But if you're from from, uh, Yorkshire in in, in the mid-1970s and you've just left school at 16 and you're working as a painter and decorator, you know, there's no path there. But I I wanted to be one because um, even as a... um, a child, and I wasn't a nerd. Well, I obviously was, um, you know, I mean, I, I went to the football home and away. Um, I went to the clubs, this, that, and the other, you know, I wasn't a nerd, but I had this abiding interest in in the world and um, more so in, in countries abroad. And there were some seminal moments seeing Martin Luther King's funeral, 1968 on telly and, you know, not understanding it, but having a sense that there is something important here. Hearing the D-Day landings, the BBC radio recordings, and in romantic naivety, thinking, "Wow, you know that sounds great." Uh, <laughs> less so, I think, if you were there. Um, and I, through one way or another, I managed to f- I managed to um, either fall or claw my way into journalism in my early twenties. After um, several mini adventures along the way, but it, it's what I always wanted to do. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: you mentioned football just just there and there. Is that a Yorkshire rose on the, the top that you're wearing?
1: Uh, no, it's the badge of Leeds United. Leeds United. I, I remain, um, as I did as a child, I uh, I go home and away still. Okay,
0: so we might come back to that if we've got time a little bit later. Um, Prisoners of Geography was you know, an international, or is an international bestseller. What do you attribute the success of that book to?
1: Uh. Luck, timing, which was luck. Um, And it's written in an accessible style. I'm not sure I have any other style. You know, I'm not capable of writing an academic book. I think what happened was um, it was 2015 it came out. And then we are in the same time that we're in now, which I believe, well, is accepted, is the multipolar world. After the relative certainties of the bipolar world, of the Cold War, all this stuff is now flowing around and and different powers are pushing and pulling in different directions, uh, in multipolar directions. And it makes the world very uncertain. And then along came this book, written in an accessible way, which argues that if you look at the geography of these events first and frame it through the geography, you know, why are the borders there? Um, Which way does the rivers flow, et cetera? What, What are the minerals, that resources that a country has? Then when you look at the history, and then when you build on top of this foundation, the current affairs, there's a lot more clarity as to why things are happening. And um, I mean, I've done it again with uh, Power of Geography, the new one. When you look at Greece and Turkey facing each other across the Adriatic, when you build in the islands, when you build in the resources that each country has or hasn't got and wants, then the tensions between them, current tensions between them, become a lot easier to understand. Uh, So it, it is a formula. And I, first, I just think it hit a chord. It struck a note in 2015 when a lot of people were thinking, what's going on? And it was a way to uh, understand what's going on.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're sitting in front of a big map right now. I can see you. Our listeners can't. Um, yes, they're so- very fortunate. <laughs> And you've also, you talked about accessibility quite a bit there, and I know you've now got an illustrated version, um, pre- yeah. presumably for a younger order. Yeah, it's
1: aimed, it's aimed at children, but, you know, the amount of adults have said, oh, yeah, that's perfect for me.
0: I've actually, <laughs> pictures. I've actually ordered it myself. <laughs> um, I'm a visual learner. Yeah. I'm interested in the, in the maps because you talk about in your book, the way that we learn about geography and the way that countries are represented on a physical map and some of the challenges there. Now, now the map that you're sitting in front of isn't the map that we would see in a school classroom. So mm-hmm. could, could you perhaps um, e- explain a little bit about the map behind you and also that some of the challenges around learning about maps in school?
1: Well, the centre of the world in that is the Pacific, uh, which I think is much more up-to-date. Uh, and I've got another map in front of me on my desk, and that's the classic Mercator map, where you know, the whole world is squeezed into it, and bang in the middle is the UK and then Europe. And of course, that reflects the people that first circumnavigated the world, and, and it reflects the mindset of what was the dominant power. And, we, and Europe was the center of the world for, for several hundred years, you could argue if you're talking politically and geopolitically, of course, a sphere doesn't really have a center on the outside, there's no such thing, but, but you know, conceptually, that's where we were. The map behind me has, has got, um, yeah, the, the Indo-Pacific region at the center of the world. Uh, and that is, because that is now the, the, the real center of where all the action is, where the money is, arms, racism, afraid, tensions, trade, Etc. There are other maps. I mean, there's the. Um, oh, oh, forgive me, I forget its name. But there's one. There's one which actually shows things more the actual shape. The if you look at the classic Mercator map, which I'm looking at now, Greenland is just about as big as Africa, but Africa is actually 11 times bigger than Greenland. But when we look at this map, they look the same size. Oh, it's the Peters map. Yeah, the Peters map actually shows you and elongates Africa and shows you its more its true shape and also how much bigger it is in relation to Greenland. But there's lots of other ones. I mean, um, I, I like maps that um, really cause you to sort of um, do a double or triple take. And there's one that I've shown to school children, uh, younger school children. And I say, is there anything wrong with this map? And they all, all their hands shoot up. And they say, it's upside down. Say, no, it's not. You know, I mean, just take your classic map and reverse it. And so there is uh, uh, Greenland at the bottom and Africa's up there at the top. But of course, it's not upside down, is it? I mean, that is, it, depending on the angle you're looking at it from, uh, it's a perfectly reasonable map. But it, ju- it gets these young minds thinking about perspective uh, and how you can look at things different ways. And also about the fact that we are a round planet, um, and and there is, I mean, this is difficult for a t- it's difficult for me. There is no up and down, there is no left and right, there is no north and south. These are just concepts that we've invented in order to be able to get from A to B. And it's it's lovely to see them, you know, the mind sort of ticking away.
0: Mm. And the UN or the yeah, the United Nations is an interesting map, because that is on the inverse of what we're used to seeing, as well, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I think they're very useful. I mean, Mercator's map is useful. I mean, it was originally for um, navigators, um, uh, and to this day, it's the most popular map. Um, uh, and it does manage to squeeze everything in, but it, it just it is, it is useful as a training exercise about perspective. You know, we are not the center of the world. Uh, and the Indo-Pacific is, and it would help us understand that if the maps that were mostly printed now shifted everything across and put pretty much actually Australia in the centre, because that's the hinge of the Indo-Pacific, you know, it, it, in one direction, the, the, the Indian Ocean, and the other direction, the Pacific Ocean.
0: Let's talk a little bit about some of those um those hinges uh, then. So prisoners of geography, you talk about every nation's choices being limited by mm. mountains, rivers, seas, concrete. When you redu- um, when you published the power of geography, you said, well, the geography hasn't changed, but the world has. So what has changed? Mm. Um, and what are the regions that are set to shape global politics for the future? Well,
1: first of all, the concept of prisoners of geography uh, is wider than just uh, what you think of as a prison, because yes, geography, it's more that it it partially dictates what happens. So you are a prisoner of your geography, even if your geography actually allows you to do things, you know, if you've got the natural resources. I mean, Britain Britain probably could not have had an empire, um, firstly, if there weren't, oak trees, which are very, very hard wood, whereas not all countries had um, as hard wood, which is very good for ships, mm-hmm. uh, withstanding cannibals, and then coal, which we've had right next to us. Um, so that, but, but, but we were still operating within the confines of geography, even if it allowed us to do things. I mean, that, that's the sort of concept. Um, now, of course, six, seven years on, the geography mostly hasn't changed. Uh, the Himalayas are still there, um, making sure that it would be incredibly difficult for India and China to fight a land war. You can't rule it out, but it, it's certainly a restraining factor. So <clears throat> sometimes it's not, well, The lead some of the leaders have changed, and that does matter because leaders do take decisions within the confines of geography, but they take decisions which can change things. Sometimes what is true of one century or a few decades geographically becomes less important. I mean, where the coal is now is much less important than it used to be. But it didn't mean that geography was no longer important. It just shifted to which things are more important and low oil. Those regions suddenly became massively geopolitically important and everything that flowed from that, including you know foreign policy in the Middle East. And it's interesting that we're now, <clears throat> I mean, the oil is still there, the geography is still there, the most of the coal is still there, but now we're gonna shift again over a period of decades into where's the best sunlight for solar panels? Where's the best hydropower? Where are the best wind farms? I mean, UK, I thought I detected a slight Scottish accent very, a lilt very. There. There's Pardon? a lilt.
0: Yeah, just... I sound more Scottish when I've had a couple of drinks. Too you just said <laughs>
1: Scottish, yes. Um, I do the same with Yorkshire. It's all right. The moment, <laughs> the moment I get back to Leeds to see the game, it's just you're like I never left. Anyway, <laughs> um yeah. So Scotland, solar power not so good. Wind power terrific. I mean, Scotland's in a fantastic position to benefit from that in the next few decades and the UK as a whole. So sorry so that that's what I mean about the 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 geography doesn't change, but the importance of which bits of it uh should, should have more focus and have more more um more effect on us that can change
0: mm-hmm. i um I can spot Lake Victoria on your map behind you. I was in Uganda last month and I was really struck by what you were saying um there there are lots of rivers all through Africa. Mm but actually that hasn't been helpful historically because of the amount of waterfalls and not being yeah. able to transfer. I mean, it's,
1: it's very, very broad brush, you know mm-hmm. I mean? Because, you know, you can point out, uh, well, there is this long straight river um, somewhere which is, has helped trade, um, and that would be true. But if you're talking broad brush, And you're comparing, for example, Europe and Africa. Europe has a lot more long, flat, stable, if you like, rivers, Mm -hmm. and it's a lot easier to trade along them. Africa has a lot more rivers that start in really high ground and then fall down really rapidly. And that's absolutely rubbish for trade. But that's actually another example of how um, changing of, of importance, because at last now in the particularly in this century, but it began um, halfway through the last century, when you can harness that power of those rapid water flows and then those waterfalls uh, for for hydropower. And the best example of that is Ethiopia. That's one of the chapters in the new book. They've built the grand Ethiopian Renaissance dam on the blue Nile as it tumbles down from the Ethiopian highlands. And, for the first time in their history, they can actually really harness that that, that aspect of, of their natural resource. I mean, there is a knock-on effect. Egypt is extraordinarily worried now because Ethiopia's got its hand on the tap. Ethiopia has no intention of turning that tap off, which would kill, I mean, literally would kill Egypt. No Nile, no Egypt. But of course, countries don't uh, look 10 years ahead. They look 50 years ahead and who knows what drought may come at which point, what does Ethiopia do? So, you know, it's a source of great tension between them at the moment. Mm
0: -hmm. And so is energy and climate one of the big, um, would you say one of the leading factors that is influencing the power of geography in the next 10? It's
1: mentioned in most chapters, um, but I I wouldn't say it dominates it because there's still so many other things. I mean, you know there's this thing like oh we're weaning ourselves off oil which is true but i do not see that we will have weaned ourselves off oil any time this side of 2080. you know it's going to take decades and in that time those areas will still be important but they will diminish very slowly that's why one of the, there's a chapter on saudi which talks about how they are reading the future and trying to diversify but there's a knock-on effect of America becoming less uh, concerned about Saudi Arabia. A and en- America is more or less energy self-sufficient. And B, um, a- as it weans itself off what Saudi has to buy, it sell. America no longer cares as much about Saudi security. And if the Saudis still feel nervous about Iran, they better have another big friend in the region. So you know, there's all these knock-on effects. Yeah, I mean, even even the episode episode the. Uh, I used to work in telly, you know. The the chapter on space, uh, I mean, there's a fair bit of that which is actually about climate because we will be mining asteroids for the misnamed rare earth materials (laughs) on these asteroids. Um, We will be going to the moon. We will be experimenting with deflecting the sun's rays down to solar farms in in places that... that, um, might not have as much, you know, there's all sorts of things are going to happen. Uh, and, and some of them are to do with with climate change. So yes, it's a theme that runs through the, the new book.
0: And when you talk about the future, what kind of timescales are you looking at in the book?
1: Mostly just the next few years, because you know, you really can make uh, strongly educated guesses. I mean, you know, we like to call it forecasting. That's a posh word for guessing. Okay. Um, but there are people that can guess better than others and who are better armed with better information or a better uh, starting point and approach. Um, obviously I sometimes guess things wrong. I'm not making, you know, I'm not talking about me here. But for example, Uh, in 2015 when I wrote um, Prisons of Geography and there was a chapter on Russia and I explained Russia's uh, well I was going to say paranoia but it actually isn't paranoia about the threats it may face from the West it's not paranoia because they've been invaded from that direction about seven times Um, and always through flat ground in front of them and it's very hard to defend along about a thousand miles of flat ground so if you can push up into that flat ground until it becomes high ground, which basically is the Carpathians, and then you plug the gap between the Carpathians and the Baltic Sea, and that's called Poland, you're in a lot stronger position. So when you know that, you know that over the next few years with the current situation, Russia will, there's no question in my mind, will take fairly dramatic action to safeguard what it believes is its, in its fundamental interests, which is to undermine Ukraine, preferably from within, to bring it back into Moscow's sphere of influence, and failing that, begin a war in the Donbass region to at least have a small buffer region, even if you can't have the whole of the country. Um, uh, and I am 99% certain that if Belarus looked like it was following a path that would lead it into what Ukraine did, flipping into, towards the west, Russian troops will enter Belarus in force. Sorry, so that's what I mean about you can do those timelines several years ahead if you were to ask me about Russia in 2080 I think that's a lot harder because uh, maybe Russia's broken up into several regions maybe and I this this I doubt maybe it's become a liberal democracy I mean I see no evidence for that happening in the next 10 20 years. So uh, it's mostly the next few years ahead, but with a few nods to the longer term, such as you know, Saudi had better uh, diversified by about 2050, 2060, because at that point, the amount of money it's getting for its oil will be diminishing. Uh, in space, <laughs> well, that's the one you can have fun with. I mean, there's a few pages where I'm just having fun about Elon Musk's billion star hotel, uh, in space, and then going forward all the way, like uh, two or three hundred years, when we've terraformed the Mars and moved there, but that you know that that's just fun.
0: And let's bring it back down to Earth because you mentioned Australia earlier. Um, on a Mercator map, it's kind of squashed into the corner.
1: <laughs> um,
0: the maps you're sitting in front of it's yeah. far more central. Um, so, what is the the role of Australia?
1: Well, it it didn't really have one for the first um, hundred years after it was colonised, other than, um, well, for several decades. uh, We can lock up convicts and forget all about them. Uh, But, you know, it built itself up. It was only um, probably from about 1900. It begins to sort of emerge as as somewhere which, which is part of the global system and you have to pay attention to. I mean, A, it supplied a lot of troops in, in the two world wars. But um, it, it, you know, it wasn't a major trading a, a place. The minerals that it has in abundance uh, were not a massive influence on the world. But once you get past the Second World War, when they've made their choice and they've ditched the British as their big brother and they've adopted a new big brother, which is the Americans, and that Pacific um, um, alliance, if you like, it grows as the importance of the Pacific grows, the Indo-Pacific, I I would say. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff in between, but coming all the way up to date, 2021, at this point, Australia can be uh, enveloped by Chinese economic influence and uh, crumble in the face of it. They've, they've come under massive diplomatic and economic pressure from the Chinese for a bunch of reasons. Or they can stay with the Americans and they have 100% absolutely clearly made their decision. And I believe it's the decision, their decision of the 21st century. You know, this is them set now for the rest of the century. They are sticking with the Americans, um, becoming closer militarily with them, uh, trade, uh, di- diplomacy. You have saw the AUKUS submarine deal, which is a huge uh, signal of what's going on. So here they are, this hinge country between the two, Um, a modern democracy. And it makes its choice. It's going to stick with the other modern democracies. It it fears China coming down past the first island chain, places like um, Japan, Taiwan, Philippines, which they probably will at some point in this century, but will they stop there? Probably not. They would then go on to massively influence the second island chain. And by that time they are on Australia's doorstep. And as I said, countries don't look 10 years ahead, they look 50 years ahead. And with an overwhelmingly possibly dominant force in the world, and I don't think they will be, I think they'll, the best they can do is parity with the Americans, but that, that's contentious. How, how does Australia uh, not fall into the Chinese sphere of influence? And we're talking about a one-party state dictatorship, which brutalises its population and bullies anyone it can diplomatically, as indeed do most countries, don't get me wrong. I'm not taking sides here, I'm just trying to explain mm-hmm. it from each of their perspectives. So Australia could have said, you know what, it's it's inevitable. They're already, the Chinese, building uh, big fishing ports in uh, Papua New Guinea, which is right just above Australia. And of course, Australians remember that the Japanese actually invaded that island and was going to invade them and bomb Darwin. And that's not so long ago, 1941. Um, So they could have just said, look, it's inevitable. Let's ditch the Americans slowly, hedge our bets, start moving towards the Chinese. But no, they've done absolutely the opposite and uh, they've made their bet.
0: It's interesting. I have some um, pals from Australia, and you know, even just when you're talking about school, you know, they had the option to learn Mandarin at school. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talked about you know, the contentious, your, your view that's perhaps contentious on the, the power, relative powers of America and mm-hmm. China. So indulge, indulge us.
1: I'm just leaving open the option that it won't happen. I mean, yeah, you know, most people think that they will overtake the Americans. The Americans, um, they go through these periods every now and again of tearing themselves apart internally, you know, the worst example, of course, being the Civil War. But on down a few scales, they did it in the 70s, 60s and 70s with the Civil Rights Movement, Kent State shootings, um, Bobby Seale, Black Panthers, Vietnam War, you name it. Um, And they come back, and they'll come back again from what they're going through at the moment. And they have these fundamentals built into the American system, partly geography, um, but also culture. Their education system, although it is becoming a little bit um, uh, split in two between the elite and everybody else, Whereas the Chinese education system actually is is building up a a huge body of of students right across the country at at, at a a very high educational level. American, that that needs to be corrected. The American infrastructure needs incredible investment. I mean, you know, you look at Germany's roads and you look at America's roads and it's like looking at two different centuries almost. Um, Sorry, I'm actually arguing against myself, but I will get back to the point. Um, There are some structural strengths in America's geography, uh, in its dynamic capitalist system, in its education system, uh, in its science, in its technology, in its ability to keep reproducing itself uh, very energetically, uh, including through uh, immigration. And it, it remains militarily 20 to 30 years ahead of, 20 years ahead of china um it hasn't given up and um, i don't believe it's in terminal decline and when you're starting from a very very strong base it's easier to keep going and even accelerate i mean go go back to africa if you're coming from a very low base of the tetsi fly in the middle third of africa kills any beast of burden you put there. Consequently, how the hell do you shift stuff hundreds of years ago? Because there are no beasts of burden. So it's a shift stuff. You know that, They're starting from a, a much more difficult place. So it's harder to catch up. The Americans, way ahead already, easier to accelerate. So that's, that's the American side of things, briefly. On the Chinese side of things, they do, uh, they do implode. If you could go back through Chinese history, periodically, they implode. Usually from the center, um, and again, what has happened so many times in the past: the eastern seaboard has become rich; the interior remains abjectly poor. You know, China is not a rich country. It's a it's a myth. If you if you divide it, uh, the GDP amongst the, um, the population, they're they're something like seventy fifth in the world. There's some African countries that are ahead of them. Um, Militarily, they're still a fair way behind. They're beginning to invent things, but at the moment, they still steal everybody else's intellectual property secrets and copy it. But they're beginning to in- innovate. So they could implode. They're going probably going through the middle-income trap, where after Japan went through it, America went through it, others went through it, after a certain point of 30, 40 years of, of growth, you hit this issue where your population now wants more money and a better standard of living so you have to pay them more and already india vietnam and mexico and others undercut them and manufacturing is actually moving out mm. so they have all these problems they have the uh, an aging population because of the one part one child policy which is now kicking in uh, i mean they've, they've junked it because they've realized The economy cannot be sustained with the the, the pyramid-shaped population they have. So, you know, it's just all these things mean it is not inevitable that China will rise to, to go past America. And also, if America can round up the posse again, not the West this time, but the advanced industrialized nations, including Japan, Australia, South Korea, India, Taiwan... And the emerging Philippines, Indonesia, well, that is incredibly more powerful than China. So, I'm, all I'm arguing is that it's, it's, it is not very few things appear to be destiny. Uh, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion.
0: Then, mm-hmm. so what about technology and digitization? Because that's something that's um, accelerating. We talked about even just this last years since the pandemic, how that's accelerated um, digitization. What is the impact that that might have on geography mm. and also the importance of physical geography?
1: I'll be honest with you, I struggle with that because I, I, don't, I don't know enough about it. But it does seem to me that that, that the previous answer I gave about the, the importance of where mm. changes it doesn't mean that geography is no longer important. Okay. Yep. And so... <clears throat> Well, one of the things that actually has happened already is, is you know, um, the place where the rare earth materials are become more important. And of course, there's more competition for them. And that is going to grow. Um, Central Africa, uh, case in point. Um, but also the economy of California, which apparently is the fifth biggest, if it was a nation, it would be the fifth biggest economy in the world. Well, a lot of that is built on tech and digitization so again you know that it doesn't diminish geography it just changes you know california becomes a lot more important than arkansas for example also um people say that cyber war um makes geography not important and i think that's completely wrong a two reasons two main reasons one you are going to choose your cyber target partially based on geography. You are not going to shut down the electricity grid in um, Rotherham if you 're China or russia you're going to shut down the grid in london. why? Yeah. Well, geography I mean geography in its widest sense it's human geography, it's architecture and lots you know connections all sorts of things but but it's still there's still geography there. And the other one is, is that if you have done that, and I regard it as an act of war, um, which it would be, um, and uh, perhaps not Britain, plucky little Britain going to war with China, but in a different scenario, a nation state uh, will respond with a cyber attack, but quite possibly also with a, a old-fashioned kinetic attack. And again, you will be choosing. Uh, I'm going to make damn sure I found out who your scientists are, and I'm going to go and get them. And um, I'm going to go and get the cyber headquarters that the, they, they launched this from, as well as any other the targets that I choose. So again, you're factoring in geography.
0: That's been fascinating. Um, before we close, I do want to touch on your other passion, football. <laughs> um, now, we've talked about Leeds United. Um, You've written another book, uh, <laughs> which is quite popular as well, about the history of Britain's football chants. Um, well, we can me? swear
1: on this podcast, we're all grown ups, aren't we?
0: <laughs> well, would you like to introduce? Yeah, you?
1: it's called Dirty Northern Bastards. And the back cover uh, says um, Soft Southern Bastards, both of chants which I heard. Uh, I was at Chelsea on uh, Saturday to see Leeds, um, and all that came back. Um, you say it's popular. I mean, yeah, it did okay. Um, I think a lot of people thought it was a book about football chants, which it is, but it's actually, uh, I used it to sneak in. It's actually a book about Britain. Okay. Because you've got to ask yourself why uh, Rangers, some, of a few Rangers fans will sing, forgive me for I'm immediately chosen a horrible dark chant, but there's a song about the Irish famine. And... Rangers fans, some, a few, uh, sung it to Celtic fans uh, who often are, mo- well, nearly always a Catholic and often have a heritage stretching back to Ireland. So it's personal. Disgusting chant that it is. Um, but, sorry, the point being that, you know, you can, you can relay that that sort of thing goes on and simultaneously talk about why in the event or there's a one the English sing whenever they go to Cardiff, which is they should have built a wall and not a bridge, which again gives you a chance to talk about Offers Dyke. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was a racist chant about a Korean at Manu. Uh he, he asked them to stop it, um, about eating dogs. Um, it was in praise of him, but it, and it gives you an opportunity to say, well, actually in Korea, only 10% of people Eat dogs. And, in, you know, it's the older generation and it's going to disappear soon. So stop being so um, stereotypical. Um, it looks at our attitude towards uh, homosexuality, because in Brighton, the gay capital of Britain, allegedly, um, although I, I was at Brighton for the way game about three weeks ago, and I, for the first time, I didn't hear the chant, we can see you holding hands and does your boyfriend know you're here? You know, I I think we are. Most of us have come out of. um, hasten to add, I wasn't in that category of people that sing those songs. Um, I think we're emerging from it. Sorry, but the point being, um, yes, it was a book about football chants, but it was also a book about Britain. Mm -hmm. Dirty Northern Bastards. If you want to buy it,
0: (laughs) I can always link to it in the in the episode details as well, along with the others. Just just on that, um, there's something around culture and also in terms of these are songs that we've sung and the relevance of and actually the appropriateness of some of these songs that are very embedded in your in your team culture Mm. as times move on we need to change the narrative and what are you seeing in football what what needs to happen
1: Uh, It it has to be organic. It has to grow. You can't dictate. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll put people off if you dictate to them. Um, I mean, there has been this thing, kick it out about racism, which um, has done a lot. I mean, there's a flat... Leeds United song is marching on together. And there's a, a group of Leeds fans who are gay um i've got a massive flag that is in, uh, the home games is um always put up and it's um marching out together uh, in the lead united colors and no one's got a problem with it as i said i haven't heard those homophobic chants and i'm talking about thousands of people singing now We I mean, you do still hear stuff um you know individuals shouting stuff but what you don't get Uh, is is the thousands of people joining in. And another one, I was at Tottenham. No, was I at Tottenham recently? (laughs) Oh, yes, of course I was, yeah. Another away game about a month ago. Well, there used to be a song which Leeds fans and uh, others used to sing about Auschwitz at Tottenham because there's this alleged Jewish connection, which is actually a bit of a myth. Didn't hear it. First time I've been to Tottenham in years when I haven't heard it. We haven't played them for a few years. So I just think throughout the game, a lot of that really vicious, vile stuff has more or less gone. And there's just a few individuals who stick to it, uh, whether it's homophobia, whether it, I haven't heard a racist chant for, for years, it must be four or five years, you know, and I go every single week, week in, week out. Um, what you won't get rid of is banter, but what I don't know what you would and wouldn't think was banter but it may be different to what people predominantly men who go to football think is and isn't banter Mm. Mm. um I mean I was at my new uh, first game of the season got beat 5-1 um and there was was a song and again I didn't join in because I just don't think it's very clever but it was um, Sancho and Rashford let the country down let the country down because they'd missed penalties and a lot of people thought that was because they were black and it absolutely isn't because I know some people that were joining in that song and I know, I know them and I know that they would never um, s- sing, you know, use the N-word, whatever. It just, they just wouldn't. And they would be furious if they were accused of it because in football culture, almost any weapon will do to get under the skin of a, an opposition player or, or indeed a fan. So you're not going to get rid of that, uh, and also I do think people need to understand the culture of people that go and get involved. Um, we've come a long way; we really have come uh, a long way, and there is still further to go. And it's so hard. To, sorry, I'm telling. I'm passionate about this. Very long answer. Forgive me. It's so hard to move towards behaving in a more or less civilized fashion. And keeping the passion in the ground. Because mm. I I go to some clubs and it's just it's just so dull. It's just so civilized. It's just ugh, no. It's a very difficult balance to keep. But there had to be action. There was. Come a long way. Still some work to do.
0: Mm, mm. No, never apologize for a long answer. I could see, I could see you lighting up there as you started talking <laughs> about people. Which did you enjoy researching more?
1: Um, worth dying for, The Power of Flags. Oh,
0: really? Because, oh, again, painful. it's
1: not really about flags. It's about nationalism and identity. Mm. But the, the vehicle is to take a country's flag and look into its colours. Why are they? What does it say? What's the myth that everybody believes about them? What's the story about how it came about? I just loved that. Yeah. Um, now... Dirty northern bastards! There wasn't that much research, <laughs> you know. It's <laughs> all sort of in my head.
0: <laughs> so, when you were researching the flags and national, you know, the stories behind them, what was the most interesting story? Ethiopia. You... Okay. what, what was there? Yeah, uh, because the
1: Ethiopian flag goes all the way back to um, Queen Solomon, a uh, queen, uh, Queen of Sheba, and her night of passion, allegedly, with um, King Solomon. Um. Uh, and that's why until the communists took over in the 60s, the, the, there was the um, form of the Star of David. But, and there, here's the real reason it just becomes wild. A, the Jamaican flag is the colors that it is partly because of the Ethiopian flag. So in other words, the Jamaican flag is connected all the way back to 3000 years ago and the queen of Sheba and Solomon. But the Rastafarian flag has got the Lion of Judah on it holding a flag. And this used to be in the centre of the Ethiopian flag, the Lion of Judah. So you've got these these Rastafarians in in the UK, but more in Jamaica, who are holding up a a flag which dates back 3,000 years ago to Ethiopia. And it's why Rastafarians believe that... Haile Selassie, the emperor in the 60s, uh, is the living God. If you know any Bob Marley songs, there's one. A get up, stand up goes, um, I, know, I, know that, I know that God is a living man. And that was a reference to Haile Selassie because, and here's where it comes together. It does say in the Bible that the Messiah will come and he will be from the line of David and he will emerge from the east. So they interpret this as, well, Solomon was from the line of David, and Haile Selassie... Oh, oh sorry, the very first emperor from that liaison, uh, menike Well, every single emperor after him, all the way down to Haile Selassie, are all from the house of David. So therefore, Haile Selassie was from the house of David. He emerged from the east, and that's why Rastafarians think that Haile Selassie is actually God, and that's why their flag is their flag. I mean, I just you know, okay, I admit it, I'm a nerd.
0: <laughs> oh, it's fascinating. There's so many rabbit holes that I would just love to go down. <laughs> yeah. But what I'm going to say instead is if, if there's a rabbit hole that you wish, um, as a listener, that I'd gone down, well, there's a book that you can probably buy uh, which will take you down that rabbit hole. So I will um, list them all in the episode notes. Um, I'd like to have one, uh, one final question to finish on, if I may, Tim. So just to wrap up the conversation, all leaders are constrained by geography. What one piece of advice would you give to business leaders in relation to geography?
1: Um, study it and encourage your um, people down the chain to study it. That, I mean, let's say you've got a country manager in country A. I would advise probably country manager in country A to also know about the politics and the geography, which because the politics have partially flowed from it, in country C, two countries along. Because if you don't study all that and realise the connections between them and quite possibly the trade, you might think that the revolution that's happening in country C is irrelevant to you, but when your supply chain suddenly stops because the country between the two of you uh siding with one side or the other and your supply chain has stopped well if you know all that stuff you could have seen that come in and diversified your supply chain i mean i'm not sure how useful that is for most people but you know you can take that approach and apply it to other things that that you know if you if you if if your product crosses boundaries and that includes um, even if it's digital national boundaries as a case in point, Russia is, uh, has passed a law bringing all its servers inside its borders and it's given itself the ability to turn the internet off from the outside world. And you need to know stuff like that, um, excuse me, um, so you can have contingency plans. And and anyway, it's interesting.
0: Yes, it, it certainly is. <laughs> um, Tim, that has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I've enjoyed thank it, you thank so you. Much for giving me your time Um, and have a lovely Christmas
1: and yourself. Thank you. Bye. -bye.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to the school for CEOs leadership insights podcast with me, Gemma soul and today's guest speaker, Tim Marshall, author of prisoners and power of geography. I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, One thing that Tim really made me reflect on is something that we talk to leaders a lot about is that need to be perpetually curious. Um, So that, that point that he made around education and seeking out new knowledge and understanding of the priorities of others to gain a new perspective and also to relate that back and how it might influence you and your agenda. If you would like to buy one of his books, uh, they are listed in the episode notes for this episode and also on our website. Find us at www.schoolforceos.com and search for the podcast under the thought leadership section. Thanks for listening everyone and see you soon.